As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Let's dive into today's conversation regarding life's myriad transitions and how we refine our responses in our relationships, our wellness, our households, our work, and in our practices. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have with me a previous guest from episode 117. Her name is Kimberly Ann Johnson. She is an old friend, a dear friend, a longtime colleague, and uh, I'm really happy that you're here. She is with one of my favorite authors of all time, someone who has completely changed the way I feel and think and act around the prospect of death. His name is Stephen Jenkinson, and if you haven't heard of him, you're welcome. Their book, Reckoning, is a joint collaborative effort, and it's, as they say, a cultural ciphering of the two humans. It's an unguarded, sober meeting with spirit work, elderhood, grief, plague, and building culture in a me-first era. To be tried at home if you care to get this book, with companions. Uh, Kimberly, the author of Call of the Wild, she's an advocate for women's health. She explores how women heal differently from men. Again, she's episode 117 and well worth your time to listen to that conversation. Uh, Stephen Jenkinson, formal bio, cultural activist, worker, author. He teaches internationally. He's the creator and principal instructor of the Orphan Wisdom School, co-founded the school with his wife, Natalie Roy, in 2010, convening semi-annually in Deakin, Ontario, and in Northern Europe as well. He has master's degrees from Harvard University in theology and the University of Toronto in social work. He has apprenticed to a master storyteller when he was a young man. He's worked extensively with dying people and their families. He is a former program director in a major Canadian hospital. He's a former assistant professor in a prominent Canadian medical school. And he's also a sculptor, a traditional canoe builder, whose house won a Governor General's Award for Architecture. I have to come and see it. Since founding the Knights of Grief and Mystery Project, and this is on tour now. So if you have a chance, go to Orphan Wisdom. I believe the site is orphanwisdom.com. Is that correct, Stephen? That's correct, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, wonderful. Orphan Wisdom. And there you can find the details on this tour. I am gutted to report that I will not be in Santa Fe when they are here. Um, but this is the Nights of Grief and Mystery, and it's a project with singer-songwriter Gregory Hoskins, founded in 2015, touring, storytelling, ceremony across the world. And now it's coming to somewhere near you. So definitely go to orphanwisdom.com and check it out. I want to just say that I'm really honored to speak to the two of you. Reckoning was sent to me by Kimberly some time ago. This is a conversation basically between the two of you to talk about what is happening to the moorings 
of our, meaning Kimberly and my generation, the talk about heartbreak and how to develop the skill of having your heart broken is so close to the vest right now. I just completed a cycle with a really sad story. My heart was deeply broken. Friendship was lost. Uh, trust was breached. Really sad stuff. And reckoning helped me get through it with an understanding of the skill that we build to be sad and to not shy away from being sad. And that is where I would love to begin today. And thank you both for being here. Pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. You speak in reckoning about this skill of being sad. You say on page 139, most dying people are enormously sad and they need help in being sad. They don't need a diagnosis. The inability to be sad when it's time to be sad and not too much sadness for too long is something that can depress people. When being sad is hurried through on the royal road to acceptance, it's one of the hardest of dying people's tasks. So the antidote for depression you propose is sadness, actually allowing ourselves to just be sad. And it's a sadness that must be taught, you go on to say. To be heartbroken is not a diagnosis. It's a skill. I really can't thank you enough personally for this. It's pretty damn good. <laughs> I will say, I'd love to just sort of open with that. I know how you talk about the opening question as sort of being a place to get your yayas out, and uh, but I think this is a great place to begin. Sure, I agree with you completely. Let's get sadness done so it belongs in the arrangement. Yeah, you don't build the way out of the house before you build the house. <laughs> so right, exactly. So, but I, I wouldn't use the allow yourself to be sad you know with all due regard to your acres of kindness with which you introduced us i think it's um it puts you in the driver's seat way too comfortably and too assuredly and heartbreak after all is it's not that kind to the architect right so it seems more in keeping to say to learn heartbreak not to learn how not to be heartbroken so learning needs time in after all not mastery familiarity, like any good romance. Not mastery, just time in. Yeah, it's funny. That is true. I, it gives me too much agency when really sadness is something that needs to be experienced and just to be with it. Deserves to be experienced. It's so interesting. Yes, yes. In um, Come of Age, which really changed my whole understanding of death, and which fortunately I read just before my mom passed, so that when she was on her deathbed, I was okay, you know? And again, not to say, oh, it's better to be okay than not to be okay, but I feel like I was at least present, and I have you to thank for that. Um, I don't know how I would have been if it weren't for this book. So thank you. Well, the timing was the God in that arrangement, I hope. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, Dr. Martin Shaw wrote on the back of Come of Age, for our listener, in case you're listening and you are curious, it isn't a book, it's an agitation, a glorious rumination that gets inside words themselves and 
tugs adroitly at their root system, part of a wider exfoliation that holds subtle ideas close, lest they disappear in all this mud, smoke, and darkness. This isn't a book, it's a kind of divining, the rare breed that can leave the scriber harrowed and the reader blessed, which is how I felt and still continue to feel. I open it all the time. It's under my bed, just to the side of my bed, under my nightstand, and I look at it often. In terms of this reckoning book, is the conversation continuing between the two of you, and will there be more of this um, just before I get into some specific questions? Yes, right now we're sitting together actually in Deakin, Ontario, which is where the farm is, where the Orphan Wisdom School takes place. And in the past year, we've been together on the road in about 12 cities, sometimes for an evening, sometimes for a weekend. And we intend to continue, although right now we're at the place where we're looking back on a year of working with each other, never having met one another, only having done podcasts. And the reckoning book itself was made without us ever seeing each other in the flesh. And then I became a student of Orphan Wisdom School and I came here last year as a student. And that was when the book was almost finished. And then for this past year, we've traveled and reckoned live and we joked with each other that it would be really bizarre to do a book reading of reenacting ourselves in dialogue. So we just, in the spirit of the book, which is not false inquiry, but genuine inquiry and wondering, do that together and yes, intend to continue doing that. I especially appreciated the way that you guys described the specifically the way that reckoning came on. A younger woman, no longer young, <laughs> author and teacher in her own right, sends a note in late fall 2021 to someone she doesn't know, an older man, not yet old, author too, activists of some kind. She proposes a talk she'll promote her purpose to wonder about what is happening, like we said earlier, to the moorings of her generation. And you began talking, you began recording these conversations, and this is what Reckoning came to. And I wonder, Kimberly, from your perspective, what do you feel has been the most important result of this interaction, this dialogue? It's hard to go to quantifiable results. So the Reckoning itself is transcripts of seven talks that we had with one another and then at the end, we wrote a letter to each other without having seen the other person's letter. Mine was three pages. His was 25, something like that. And mine was filled with mostly questions. I think if I were to write another one now, I still have a lot of questions, but I would be, I'm a little bit farther down the line of understanding how to translate it in what I'm doing in the world. Because at first it's just a total shakedown and all of the fundamental principles of yoga and Buddhism and all of the ways that I've been taught by people who look like me, but about other cultural inheritance. Uh, now that I've been on the farm a couple of times, 
now that I've just, I think, probably had more time with the way of thinking, way of looking at things. I can't give you one result because I think people think, oh, well, Stephen's really philosophical, but I don't really understand how I'm going to, like, can you just give me the bullet points now? Because times are urgent and things are not good. So you should give me the shortcut so I can help out as fast as possible. And I get it. And it happens every time that we're together and it's understandable. So I can tell you because it's been two years. So I'm getting married and I might've gotten married otherwise, but I probably wouldn't have gotten married in the same timing. It's almost as if the cartilage in my backbone has gotten thicker because things that are easy to shy away from, conversations that are hard to have, it's become more important to me to have them. And I have a little bit more courage to do so. And then there's a whole lot of things that are completely tangible. Forgive me, but that's a great result. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot. There's, as you can tell in the Reckoning book itself, and there's so many complicated calculations that we all have to make these days, right? Anything, just even getting on a plane. Right now, I'm in Canada. My daughter's in New York. We had thunderstorms and we had fires here in Canada. And based on those weather patterns, all the flights are canceled out of New York and transportation's canceled for a while. And this is just one moment in you know, a lot of moments, but we all know about the environmental crisis and anxiety, which amplifies what seems to be unusual weather conditions. Uh, The fact that I'm even here in the first place, obviously, like I came across a country line and I took an airplane, several of them actually. I have an online presence as you do. I use social media. I'm quite aware it's even if the research wasn't in, it's very obvious to me that my memory is changing as a result of my social media use combined with being in menopause and combined with maybe COVID stuff, I don't really know. So I'm straddling worlds. The reason I was able to sell my book is because I made myself an online presence. But I feel like the encounter doesn't let me off the hook, but in the best possible way. I'll repeat, I really do appreciate the expansion, I guess, of your purview and your questions. And that's cool. You know, that's, uh, I am loath to say anything, but I do feel like that's a step in a pretty good direction where there's more. I'm turning to page 142 and 143, where Stephen implores us to kind of give priority to mystery, to allowing enigma to inform us the quote unquote dark humility which I feel very strongly here at this time in my life. He writes, you practice that by understanding your body and its weather as routinely departing from you. It leaves the shore for a time. It leaves you standing there and then comes back. And it's all practice for understanding the day will come, my friend, when this little bark of your body will depart. Bark is spelled B-A-R-Q-U-E, the French word for boat. This little bark of your body will depart without you. It will. It will be better to practice that departure, that undoing, that mystery. And I feel like what you're saying, Kimberly, is that, you know, that practice is becoming 
more natural and more a part of your world, it feels like. And uh, yeah, it's nice to hear that. It makes it sound like I'm a lot more together than it actually goes down, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, we're none of us are together, really, but I hear you. It's an unusual experience. So, you know, we go on the road and as you quoted, it's a younger woman, no longer young and an older man, not quite old. That in and of itself already sets in motion all kinds of expectations and knee-jerk reactions. And so it's in the air all the time about who's speaking for how long, who has the microphone. And this obsession that we have in the culture with diminishing all kinds of hierarchy and imagining that we all are worth the same amount where, of course, there's inherent worthiness, but that somehow the fact that one person has way more life experience and years under their belt should just go away and maybe even defer because I'm a woman, for example. So there's what's happening between us, but there's also what's happening among us. And when you work with someone who's apprenticed death, then that's there too. So there's nothing comfortable about the practice of it. It's completely disarming, especially because all of the time I'm up against things that should be basic human knowledge that I don't have any understanding of. And I'm confronted with how abstracted things like Ram Dass's statement of we're all here walking each other home really is like when I'm here at the farm and it's pitch black, you actually need someone to literally walk you home, not like metaphorically walk someone home Mm. or going to town on something. It's like, that's actually because at one point in a peasant life, you would dress up to go to town. So, so many parts of our language, so many ways of understanding things come from hunting, come from being in an earth-based relationship that for someone who grew up in the suburbs and probably in some ways my immediate family trying to move away from farming and become more quote-unquote civilized, it's extremely confronting. And actually the things that I did for self-improvement and self-development, they gave me the capacity to be as present as I can be in the space, but they also took me away from developing some of the skills that are so really basic and that a lot of five-year-olds who've grown up on a farm would know how to do that I don't know how to do. That's very humbling for me and saddening. Mm, What makes you sad about that? Well, it feels directly connected to the rampant depression. I have a 15-year-old and most of her friends are medicated and most of them also don't know how to do the things I speak of. So I'm not in a position to teach them because I don't know how to do them myself. That makes me really sad. It's sad because I think there's an underlying deep fear of literally survive in relationship to our environment that's not existential about the environmental crisis that then becomes labeled as a mental health problem. And then I'm in the situation of a lot of people bringing me things that are considered to be mental health problems, but actually come from this larger web of an absence of culture. So it's very sad to me. It's so threadbare 
even to know what an ancestor is. Like I find myself confused about that. I could give a definition of it and I could act like I know, but I really know that I don't exactly know. And I get confused and I say, wait, is that the same thing as a relative? Or is it just the people I'm related to? Or is it just my bloodline? Or what would it actually mean to live in a way that I felt a connection to them? And do I fake it first? Or do I, where do I go to learn about that? And that's sad to me. Somebody who's almost 50, which is means I'm most likely past the halfway point of my life, maybe well past it, maybe a little bit past it, who knows. And that all around me, there's anti-aging advice and there's all of this emphasis on being as healthy as possible. And I just think, but everyone's so unhappy. Why does everybody want to live so long? And when we're living so long, what comes of that? Mm. Yeah, that's... uh enough fodder for sadness, I would say. Stephen, the love affair in reverse, the mention that you made of that here in Reckoning was also in Die Wise. You made a claim that the ending of things is trying to oblige you to reallocate your love to some place where it's no longer relied upon as a binding agent. No longer relied upon as an insurance policy against loneliness. No longer relied upon as a reversal in fortune. And this doesn't mean, you say, the collapse of distance. It means that even your understanding of love submits to the ending of things. So somewhere in there, you begin to love the ending of what you love. I think... I fought with this for three days until it finally just broke me down weeping. And I realized how uncomfortable, even in all of the reading and the practice and the oh, corpse pose and, you know, the talking, even in all of it, I'm so uncomfortable with the idea that all of this will end all of the sweetness with my partner, all of the kindnesses that I share with my friends, all of it will end. And I wonder, you know, how do you offer folks that ending? If there's anything more you can say on this. Yeah, by practicing it. I mean, it's one thing to advocate it, but if you have to advocate this kind of thing by pointing elsewhere or by quoting something else, then apparently there's a little bit of a translation disconnect and it's not available to the people who are actually attending to what you're on about. So at the end of the day, every appearance, if you're not practicing the ending, not to subvert the ending, but so that you can end. In other words, I'm trying to say it like it's something that you do. It's not some inevitable foreclosure, some kind of roof caving in, some kind of chicken little, you know, uh, destruction of the firmament. Ending is something you do. Coming to an end is a little bit, it's a little vague. It's a little passive. And frankly, it's a little juvenile. Yeah. So ending is, needs to be undertaken. You know, not so that you can finally subvert it. Because if you make room for it, then it's going to take its seat at the table in the banquet hall of your life. It's not going to take the whole joint over. But if you don't give it a seat, 
you know what it'll do. You've seen it before. You know what a disastrous ending actually looks like. Right. So they take the whole house. They take the whole hall. They take the block. They take the city. Isn't it true? Okay. So I think the architecture of this is generous in an available sort of way. Like as any deity does. It said, just let me in. Don't think that because I'm a deity, I'm fine as I am. There's a reason you're around. It's to make room for the likes of us. And that's, you know, apropos of Kimberly's wondering about ancestry. That's part of the deal. If you give them a seat, they don't take the room. But that's active, you see. That's something that you do. You don't just allocate an empty seat. It's not milk and cookies for Santa Claus I'm talking about here. It's a portion of your life that you don't occupy. Like I have a section of the farm here that we never go to. It's not hocus pocus. It's not uh, superstition. It's trying to provide a bit of an alley for the wild between the wilderness up above us in the highlands and the water, the river that runs along the edge of the farm. This is my way of enacting exactly what I'm telling you. I just don't go there and I tell them it's yours. And I have no idea what it looks like. I've been here almost 25 years. I have no clue what's there. I could have 18 squatters in there for all I know. I don't think I do. But um, I would dare say that the wild is founded by now. And they may have been telling each other from time to time. Well, I'll just tell you a story. I drove here from Toronto one time, four and a half hour drive, got here at one in the morning. The whole place had been ravaged by beavers for the longest time before I bought the place. And uh, they're just doing their beaverish thing, of course, but it's very destructive if your idea of fun doesn't include ponds everywhere. So it's pretty hard to cultivate underwater unless you're doing rice, which, you know, in Canada, so forget that. So I pull around the corner being exhausted in my efforts to turn the beavers away. And I almost hit one in the middle of the road and I slammed on the brakes and I looked in the rearview mirror and there by the light of the brake lights, I could see this beaver sitting on his tail with his arms folded, basically, enjoying the moonlight. <laughs> That's what he was doing. And he was completely unperturbed by my presence to the point where I thought, this would be an easy takeout, wouldn't it? I could just back over him, and that's one less beaver, which was the program and the plan all along. Of course, it wouldn't be much of a story if that's what I did, and I probably wouldn't tell you if that's what I did. Right. And I didn't do it not as a, as a way of sorting myself out. I just couldn't bring myself to put it in reverse. I, it was a failure of the will. I couldn't do it. So in disgust, I put it in forward and drove away. A week later, God is my witness, they were all gone, and they've never been back. That means something, you see. That's part of the deal. Because That's you giving, didn't run him it, over. Yeah, well, it's partly that. I mean, I, I, see. I get the good guy points for not doing it, clearly. <laughs> I, I think. And I tell the story. <laughs> good guy points, please. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, but it's true. I mean, it happened just like that. And they're still not back. And I think that they just figured I was a lost cause at that point and they should just move on. And, you know, I don't think it's any more glorious than that. But in my little corner of my life, that turned into something that I could, by virtue of being willing to submit to something that I couldn't change, 
it changed. That's what magic is. On page 91, you quote Leonard Cohen. Oh, yeah. Who said, apropos of himself, as you say, I don't trust my inner feelings. Inner feelings come and go. They just come and go. If they don't come and go, what do you call that? And you say, you propose... Constipation. Constipation. You also propose the word trauma. So what would you rather be traumatized by, you ask? By a fixed set of feelings, mostly of the grievance kind? Or would you rather that even your grievances, your most deeply set feelings, the ones that answer to your name with routine... Would you rather they dissolve from time to time and crystallize and pass through the circuitry and come out the other end and make no particular claim on you? I really appreciate that. Kimberly, you went on to ask, you would pray that their feelings end before they do? And Stephen says, you know, that they properly turn into the compost that they're trying to get to. That's what you would pray for. I mean, you say, our feelings get stuck in us on their way to their fate. I put it this way because I'm speaking as an animist now, obviously, and attributing a certain kind of purposefulness to feelings. They're trying, it seems to me, to play out and in so doing to extinguish, and they get waylaid on the way through us from their proper purpose, hypothetically of being extinguished. They get stuck and they stay. They turn into identities. You go on to say it's a deeply, spectacularly ill-considered orientation we have that we cling to feelings, mistaking them for the most adamant part of us, not necessarily the truest. And that, I know we don't want to come to any conclusions here, and I really get that, but that has helped me a great deal in the, in the recent weeks. You know, this feeling that feels so purposeful and even dignified and righteous. You know, I can't let it get stuck. And I wonder if either of you, both of you, might be able to offer to our listener some of the ways in which you practice that natural flow of feeling through your system. In the book, I'm asking for clarification because feelings are so prevalent. And then if we are really honest about it, we know that they're in a category with the feminine. So thoughts are considered to be masculine and feelings are supposed to be feminine. And we fought sort of in therapy for feelings to be the important thing. And what I've been really careful to do for these past two years is to not try to filter anything that I'm hearing through the old like pasta maker. So I don't say like, oh yeah, well feelings like Leonard Cohen said, they come and go. And oh yeah, well, I know that that's impermanence. I, Anicha, like I've learned that I know about things that aren't permanent and feelings just are like everything else. So I don't assume that I understand it. And then it's hitting me differently And then I just have to be befuddled for a while. And I wouldn't say that I'm any better at it necessarily. I just realize that through a fixation on, you know, things like self-worth and self-esteem 
it just seems like I'm not looking at the right things. So it's not that I still don't have conversations with my daughter about how she feels about something or how I feel about something. It's just that I'm more often like, look where we're not usually looking. Shift something that maybe seems unrelated, but has a little more elegance to it. And there's a way that we just like, look directly at everything and then shine a strobe light on it and then analyze it even more and then try to enlist other people around us in our analysis. And that's what means being seen or being mirrored or being witnessed. And we have shrunken down this world that's outside our windows and we've prioritized so much this inner world, right? That that comes up in one of the talks in Reckoning when Stephen Jenkinson is talking about ancestors of people that look like him and I coming over the ocean onto the East coast of North America, and then coming all the way across the coast to the West coast. And my family particularly is from the West coast. And then there's no territory left to invade and invading the territory of the self. So just that framework itself for someone who's trained to do one-on-one session work is very arresting because it's calling me towards something different, but I can't just cold turkey it and imagine that I have some other kind of training and some other kind of skills. But at the same time, I also can't ignore a deeper call to make sure that I'm attending to something else at the same time that doesn't have me at the center of it, which is quite a high wire act because so much of my women's work is trying to help women find their inner center with a reference towards the natural world. But of course, even my book, as you said, is called Call of the Wild. Like, what do I really know about the wild? So how am I employing these archetypes? What am I using them for extractively are just questions that I sit with. So as you know, we talked about this in the last podcast we did, and it's true also in the introduction of Reckoning. I came at a point of pretty extreme heartbreak to the first encounter that we had. And that was really obvious, even though Stephen couldn't see me crying the whole time. It was obvious in the way that I was speaking and, and what I was bringing to that conversation. But he didn't then say, well, let's look at what you're going to, the lessons you're going to learn from this. Actually, it's better than you think it is. He said the opposite. He said it's worse than you think it is. Yeah, this is important right here. This is everything. I would love to hear the rest of this. I know the story that preceded this. I wonder if you're willing to talk about it or if we could just continue on this track of you don't have to gloss over anything and you don't have to make it great and the most important lesson of your life. You know, it can suck for a long time. Yeah, and it wasn't just it can suck for you, but it was there's a responsibility to what's happening in these times. A lot of times when people start talking about the things that are happening, like the uh, what's happening with birth, for instance, that birth is getting harder and harder for women all around the world. Uh, what's happening where our attention is getting jostled all the time towards things that are may or may not be worthy of our attention or as much attention as they're getting. So he wasn't speaking to me directly. He was saying that it's 
important and critical if you are going to serve, if you are going to be a citizen, which to me has service at its forefront, then you have to be responsive to the fact that, no, these times are not the same as all the times that have become, yes, okay, World War II and okay, Vietnam, but that's different than what's happening now. And so articulating those differences has been a large part of our work together and and my work in learning without the solutions. And that in and of itself is part of what's radical about it. Because almost everyone that I interview, even if they're willing to elaborate on the things that aren't going well, and they might even speak about grief, they're theorizing about it more than they're actually practicing it because we're so fixated on the redemptive end. And we just manage to find it in every conversation, in every interaction, in every teaching. We just can't drop that bone. Like it's my responsibility as a leader to end up giving people some hope or giving them the nugget that they can chew on. It's like we can't rely on people being adults and being able to sit with the devastation that is a pandemic, that is the isolation that comes from the pandemic, that is 15-year-olds being on multiple medications, that is suicidality and people having really intricate plans for that and sharing them. I mean, we started this conversation talking about sadness and the difference between sadness and depression. There's a difference between sadness and depression and grief and despair as well. And I wasn't really alert to those things before I encountered Stephen Jenkinson. Releasing the fixation on redemption is probably going to be the work of the rest of our lives, especially if we're in service. That fixation needs some redemption. Oh my goodness. Stephen, I would love to ask you a question about elderhood. You were the first person, and I want to give credit where credit is due. Thank you to Jenny Ferry, who sent me your book with the most glorious card and the best of intentions, and it really did change my life, as I mentioned. Making the case for elderhood in a time of trouble. This is the subtext of the book. A beautiful forward by Charles Eisenstein. Lots of wisdom here for you, our listener. Elderhood is something that I wasn't comfortable with. I wasn't even anywhere near that taco stand until I looked at this book. And I would love to hear you sort of riff a bit, if I may ask you, on what it means to really become an elder in this time and the importance of, like you said earlier, just taking that on and doing it rather than allowing it. Honestly, I don't think you become an elder. Uh, The reason I'm pointing that out in particular is because the phrase carries with it kind of designation, a kind of efficacy that's self-evident, a kind of brand, a kind of membership, all these things. If you're doing the work of elderhood, then I think it's important to let slip the notion that you're an elder. You may be occupying the eldering gig at the moment, because that's the circumstance. And you're a child of circumstance as an elder. Two, 
you really need someone to petition for the love of God for an elder to be somehow materialized. If that's not in the cards, if that's not in the architecture, you really don't have much to do. You can mourn, as I've done. You can lament, as I've certainly done. And you can wait, which I will probably continue to do in many ways. And you may look out the window and wonder what's to become of what's been entrusted to you. And how do you die thinned out and not engorged by not being able to part with what's been entrusted to you? So it's work, you know, it's not getting recognition. It's work. And if you're working well, you're working yourself out of a job because you're democratizing the alertness and the lucidity that has come to you as a consequence of your misadventures and your misdeeds and all your losses. That's your calling card, really. That's your skillfulness, is that you learned how to lose. In every sense of that term can be meant. There are other things, too. There's a certain joy that comes with it, but no relief, if you will. You're not getting to the end of any particular self-esteem rainbow in that gig. And I'm just telling you what little I know about it from a distance, you know. I think it's important to mention a Georgian tribal curse at a time like this. They belong, and this one certainly does. They said something in the order of, and may your last elder die before your real loneliness comes to you. That's weapons-grade cursing right there. It tells you that these tribal people had a fundamental understanding that minus the elders in your midst, you don't stand a chance. And, uh, you know, my experience overall is to say that people can't wait to rid themselves of the burden that elderhood would seem to confer upon them. And I just don't mean older people. I mean younger people, too. There's a general understanding that elders should be like Santa Claus, like ancestors, like God. They should be on call, but not really present, you know kind of on call if you need extras for a party. If you're in trouble, that's who you call. But the notion that the elder will somehow just magically be there because you've hit the shit, you know, it's just haplessly one-sided and ill-informed because it's the culture that's got to sustain the institution of elderhood. And if it fails to do so, you can't be surprised that there's no elder to turn to. Come on now. That's what your whole middle age was for was to take care of, quote, the institution of elderhood. That's your gig, man. Your gig is not to tear away at them out of envy because you're not sure you're ever going to get your turn and they're taking up too much room and they're hanging around like a bad smell too long. But uh, this is the time we're in and it's not going to turn around anytime soon. Nobody's going to look up one day from their self-absorption and say, hey, what about those geezers? Man, have I ever overlooked that stuff? until it's their geezer time. And they'll wonder, how is it so miserably impoverished? And the answer is, hey, when it was your turn to keep the thing alive, what did you do? Same with ancestors. What do you propose, if anything, for those of us who really do feel this and care about this, what do you propose we do? I, for my own part, am going to be serving in some senior homes here where I live 
just providing food and serving food and leading meditation for anyone who cares to join me, providing some comfort, maybe rubbing some feet if that's allowed. What do you propose? Well, being the answer guy is a full-time job and I already got enough to do. So I'm not sure how to fix, you know, what I'm alluding to here, but I'm going to say something that's going to seem so ungenerous, I think, on the surface of it. And it's this, you know, that old folks home you're talking about, that's a tombstone for elderhood. Yeah. That's what it is. That's why they're there. Okay. I'm not saying don't do it. Of course not. I'm saying, please don't mistake a filing cabinet full of old people for the repository of collective cultural wisdom that you would rightfully deserve from such a, a conglomeration. It's really sad, man. And it's going to get sadder before it gets otherwise. So I recommend getting hip here. I don't recommend taking your vitamins. I mean, take your vitamins, but elderhood doesn't come from being in peak showroom condition. Elderhood is a consequence of diminishment. (laughs) Right. Willing diminishment. (laughs) Or not. I mean, if you're willing to be diminished on the installment plan, you know, it's not, it's not really the thing. It's getting, getting green is what we're talking about. <laughs> All right. On page 72, you say, so when you're a child of a troubled time, as both of us are, you're speaking to Kimberly, and certainly your daughter is, what's the sound upon awakening that we make? Is it hallelujah or is it, I get it now? Is it finally? Is there any sound of victory or the hero's journey or any of that? My answer is, it's a sob. That's the sound upon awakening at a time such as ours. And you were all but making that sound various times as we've been talking here and perhaps after yesterday. And there's more where that came from, God willing. And so, amen is a kind of sob without the immediate heartbreak there. I think that's just what the word means. Amen is, man, it's beyond me. It's just frankly beyond me. You know, I'll work, but I'm telling you, I'm not getting there. It's too vast. And you include a P.S. P.S. There's a little medieval prayer I ran across a long, long time ago. I've never forgotten it. I mean, it's so short, it's hard to forget. It went like this. God help me. My boat is so small and your sea so vast. It's really um, different for me to end on such a realistic note that doesn't have the redemption fixation, that isn't tied up in a neat bow, that doesn't make sense necessarily. I think it's apropos. I wonder if either of you have anything else that you would like to add for our listener who is finishing perhaps on a sob in that uncomfortable space of wondering what's next and not having an answer. Well, first thing is you'll get your answer for what's next. Don't you worry. You might have to hang in there a bit. But what's next is coming, isn't it? By Kind of by definition. 
So not knowing what's next is not the same thing as there's no what's next. There is. That's one. Two, you know, I love that prayer because it's not asking for anything. Nothing concrete. It's Let's put it another way. It's not asking for anything to be different than my boat is so small and your sea so immense. It's not a gripe. It's not a grievance. It's not saying something fundamentally is wrong and I don't deserve it. It's acknowledging the whole crazy, lumpy deal. And it's asking for help. That's all. It's not asking for a refund. It's brilliant, you see. And that's what we're doing, addressing these things, is we're not saying everybody line up for a refund because nobody deserves this. I don't think either one of us are saying that here. We're saying, this is not a meritocracy, baby. We're living out the consequences of what we meant not so very long ago. That's what this is. These are the consequences of what we meant, not what we intended. These are meanings we're dealing with now. That's where we sit. Three, I have to tell you that your reading of what Kimberly and I came up with sounds at least as good as it did when we came up with it. It sounds better to me. It's like, I want to read that book, man, but I want to read <laughs> your reading of it. That's what I want to hear. I've spent a good amount of time with it. I really feel it. And I'm very confused by it. And that's a first. It's new for me. Thank you. Um, last thing, and Kimberly, I want to hear from you one more time too, but you talk about the word awake here in this book and meaning making. <laughs> and I feel like we need to address this because this word awake, this poor word has been just completely lost and not found. And I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about what it means to actually be awake in your understanding. Well, awake isn't what you are. It's what you fitfully do. That's the first thing. So it's not an identity. It's not an achievement. And it's not a destination. It's just kind of, you get lucky. You don't screw up too badly. And awakeness can be part of what happens as a result for a while. Uh, the word, of course, as you've noticed, means something like, okay, there's a web of consequence. It fans out from everything you do. It's true at the end of your life when your friends or your so-called friends or the people that never quite managed to be your friend congregate somewhere, have some inebriant that helps things flow and begin to tell some truth about you that your presence on the scene forbade. That's awake. That's how the meaning of your life begins to appear. And the other incarnation, of course, is you're passing through life like you're passing through water. And there's a kind of fan-shaped vector that comes out behind you. And that's what your life means, your little life. And that's what life meant to you, too. They're both there, and they mingle, and you're not really the boss of whether or not that's so. That's already so, and your tongue is silent now. And you're on the receiving end of everything you put into motion. That's what the condition of being awake. So, of course, careful what you wish for on this awakened thing. Because it's, um, it's a big ask to be awake. And it's an extraordinary burden. And it doesn't pay well. But the world, minus our awakeness, hasn't done too well. The 
quote that you gave regarding that web of consequence, if you reassemble the word, it means of the web of consequence that fanned out from everything you did and didn't do and everything you said and all the rest of it and the whole crazy thing. Awake means the condition of copying, copying to the web of consequence, most of which is beyond your intention or even your realization or even your give-a-shit. That's what being awake really means. Just recognizing it's completely beyond you. That's my interpretation. And like getting okay with that. (laughs) Stop trying to be a master of all these things and stop trying to understand everything like Kimberly was saying earlier. Just be okay with like going to sleep and not having a damn clue. No solutions. And no fixes. Kimberly, when you think about this word, what comes to mind? Well, this one's been a challenge for me to understand because it has a lot to do with our understanding of time and how past, present, and future work. So when I thought about the wake of a boat, I thought about a boat moving through water and the wake is behind the boat as it's driving. But if a person is standing in the river and the water is going So you're standing facing the direction that the water is going. The wake will be moving towards the front side of your body, which normally we would think of as the future. Because the future we would think about is what's in front of us. In this case, we're looking at the wake going in front of us to what we've thought of as our future, rather than the wake being the web of consequence that's behind us if you're in the boat. So all of a sudden, this thing of, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's at least five books that are titled Wake Up or Waking Up or Be Awake Now or something like that. And my whole framework of memory and what remembering is, right? In yoga practice, I never really got the smriti, the the memory one of, well, what are we supposed to remember and what are we not supposed to remember to be fully occupying the present moment? But this understanding of awake flips it on its head that your past is actually becoming your future individually and among us. And so that's our responsibility lies there. So it's not a quality that I'm searching for. It's a way of moving through my days in recognition of an absolute kind of idiocy it would be to try to dissolve the past or dissolve the things of the past that we don't like or we're not proud of, whether those are personal characteristics or people or relatives, statues, statues, and imagining that that would have lasting or genuine impact on what we're opening our hand to that's moving out in front of us. I just want to say thank you both so much for being here for the work that you've done, for the time that you've taken, the care that you've given. Stephen, I also want to thank you in particular for Grief Walker. You were the f- subject of this feature-length documentary film. If, if you're listening to us, Grief Walker is an important film, particularly as a member of this Western society, to see precisely the results of what we have wrought on the topic of death. Die Wise is one of the books that I have kept close 
of course, come of age, which is more recent. And then even more recently still, a generation's worth, spirit work, while the crisis reigns. And that was published in 2021. I could go on with you for a very long time, but I'm going to stop us here. Any closing uh, words, Stephen, if you'd like to add those in, we will happily receive and listen. Well, this is the uh, Chinese finger trap, saying something famous and enduring at the end, as if you couldn't manage it for the bulk of the interview, but somehow you're saving it. <laughs> and I wasn't saving anything. Genuinely, I I really meant everything that I managed. And uh, I'm just you know, glad for the opportunity and honored by the attention, and in particular, getting to hear Kimberly speak at length, you know, which doesn't happen a lot. But uh, this opportunity is really something. And I, I was glad to be able to sit and listen. And I had a front row seat on somebody working the mystery. So uh, I was with you on that one. And uh, what a privilege, you know. So all around, I score this a 10 out of 10. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And, and Kimberly, you know I'm one of your biggest fans, but it's really such a pleasure to continue this friendship and deep respect over so many years. I really appreciate you. And I want to encourage our listener to please uh, go to, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to thank you for really reading the books mm-hmm. and sometimes people come and interview one of us or both of us and they just kind of want us to do the dance and not that their questions aren't, you know, people have questions and there's different ways of doing it, but I just wanted to say thank you for the time that you've already put in with the material and your careful reading and engagement of it. It it means a lot. Amen. Amen. I really, really appreciate both of you so Our listener, the website is orphanwisdom.com. Dive in. You will never regret it. And I hope that I hear some reports about a few of you who have gone to the Nights of Grief and Mystery tour that I have a feeling will change your life in some way. (laughs) It won't solve anything, but it will change the way that you see things. Thank you so much, both of you. My hands are folded. My head is bowed. I truly appreciate who you are and what you're bringing to this planet. Thank you both so much. And you too. Thank you. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. 
The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.